Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. There is nothing that has reminded me more of the energy in a newsroom than the energy on a chemo ward. So the chemo comes through an IV drip. And when the IV finishes, there's an alarm that goes off on these machines. So there's a dozen people sitting around and, you know, these constant alarms going off and nurses running from uh, alarm to alarm to alarm. And uh, like you can see their desks at the nursing station. There's the half eaten lunches on the desk that's reminiscent of a newsroom. And this this sense of running to like this urgent thing. No, that urgent thing. No, this urgent thing. And as a patient sitting there, you know, you're like, how is there not a better way to do this? And you know the nurses are too busy to conceive of a better way. They're just going from alarm to alarm to to alarm. And I really think that this is the point we're at in journalism. And we don't take the time to think and to talk about these things you know, maybe it's too fine a point to direct attention to the fact that actually what a chemo ward is, is putting poison into people's veins. And that perhaps journalists should think about what it is that we're putting into people's veins in the work that we do. We just lost one of the very best. It sounds corny, but it's just accurate that journalism is the kind of job that when you ask people why they are getting into it uh, when they are just starting out, a lot of them will tell you that they're getting into it because they think that they can use it to make the world a better place. They want to become journalists because they have this very idealistic sense of purpose. Jody Porter described her purpose that way originally. She wrote about it years ago in Mason of Magazine about how she came to journalism through a sense of duty and In northwestern Ontario, both in Sioux Lookout and in Thunder Bay, she often found herself reporting about stories of injustices that Indigenous people in those places live with every day. But Jody Porter, being a white woman, telling stories about Indigenous people, that relationship was complicated, and it's one that she did not look away from. It's a complication that she examined very carefully and closely, and it led to some realizations for her. This was not something that she had really come to terms with until she was diagnosed with cancer. And reflecting on that, she wrote, for years, I had been neatly ordering the world along racial lines, indigenous and non-indigenous, the two sides to nearly every story I told. Through this clouded lens, I bore witness to the suffering of others and concocted a narrative in which I, in my whiteness, my nobodiness, my invisible presence behind the microphone, became, if not immortal, then definitely immune to the kind of suffering I reported on. I thought my years of engaging on Indigenous issues had protected me from the white savior complex. Instead, I was blindly galloping around on my white horse, not seeing the wholeness of Indigenous lives and experience, not seeing my own brokenness. In focusing so much on the hurt in other people's lives, I'd missed the lessons they offered about healing. 
So that is a very bracing piece of self-criticism. Jody Porter is not being very generous to herself there. And though there's a lot of truth in what she wrote there, what's left out is the fact that if she had not spent years bringing attention to the issues in Thunder Bay, laying a groundwork for so many reporters that came after her, well, certainly I know that we would not have been able to make our series about Thunder Bay. Jody Porter directly welcomed us and connected us and made sure that we did something better than parachute journalism when we reported in Thunder Bay. But she did that for so many other people. And her work itself has been cited in all kinds of hearings and consequences in that town, including by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was especially difficult for Jody personally to come to terms with the impact of her reporting when Gord Downey, who himself was facing his own mortality through his cancer diagnosis, he told the story of Chani Wenjak, an indigenous boy who died of exposure when trying to walk home from a remote residential school. The reason why Gord Downey made it his business to tell that story in, in music and in a book is because his brother had first heard Jody Porter's documentary about Chani Wenjak on the CBC. So there was Jody Porter's work right there at the beginning of Gord Downey's relationship with Indigenous stories, which was consequential because, of course, beyond his own retelling of that story, there was the public profile that Gord Downey brought towards reconciliation in the final chapter of his life. And it began with Jody Porter's coverage. So many things began with Jody Porter's coverage. And whether that is something to be super proud of or more complicated or both is something that I talked with Jody Porter about back in November of 2020. Today, we're going to re-air that conversation because after more than two decades of working for the CBC in Thunder Bay, Jody Porter died last month at the age of 50. When we spoke in 2020, it was during the Braden Bushby trial. Uh, he was charged, and after this conversation, he was found guilty of manslaughter and the death of Barbara Kentner. He was sentenced to eight years in prison after throwing a trailer hitch at her out of the window of a moving vehicle. I'm so glad to have known Jody Porter. I wish I had known her better. My conversation with her in a moment. Wait for it. Jody, you've been covering the uh, Braden Bushby trial all week. How are you doing? Yeah, you know, a lot more people are asking me that uh, after this trial than other legal proceedings I've covered, and and I really appreciate the awareness that that um, these are difficult things, and certainly not as difficult for me as for the family that's there. The the really remarkable thing um, that you know, maybe it's always gone on or maybe I'm just more aware of it these days. But um, there were lots of elders around um, and there was a sacred fire burning the whole time the trial was on at the request of the family. And in previous reporting that I've done, when I have been aware of those sorts of ceremonial things, I've been hesitant to go to them or or take part in them because I had this feeling that it would show some kind of bias. And I spent some time the last little while debunking that for myself. And so I did go and visit the sacred fire. 
and I had a good cry there, mm-hmm. and it, it really helped. And I don't think it biased me in covering the trial. And I, it also made me consider that, you know, a lot of the work we do as journalists kind of support and legitimate the courts. And we're hearing from Indigenous people in particular that Canadian courts don't feel legitimate, are not legitimate. And what would it mean to, instead of covering the trial, to cover what's happening at the sacred fire? And so that's what I'm thinking about at the end of a very long week. Yeah. I mean, why would that not be part of the story? To to the extent that this story is a sick joke of if an Indigenous woman was walking down the street minding her own business and was struck down by a metal object hurled at her, would they find a way to make it her fault? And they, they are trying to do that. And so the relevance of this case is in no small part what it means to her community. And I mean, I think certainly, you know, within the the way that journalism is currently practiced when it's practiced well, there is room for us to talk to victims and their families and talk about what it means. I think what I'm leaning towards here is a way of legitimizing the ceremony, the First Nations ceremony, as justice itself. And it's tricky, right, because we want to hold institutions to account. And in the ideal world, we would do both. And I'm thinking hard at the end of this week about how, as a journalist, I could do a better job of upholding Indigenous justice traditions um, and not spending so much time, you know, writing down the words of a defense lawyer who wants to make a case that someone was going to die anyway, so they deserve to die in a violent way. And that that person is an Indigenous woman is no small part of that. You know, we're, we're trying to be more thoughtful about our practice here as we find ourselves more frequently telling stories about Indigenous people and Indigenous issues. And one thing that we really try to do is include Indigenous people uh, when possible as the storytellers. And so we had a conversation about, uh, is this appropriate? You know, like, should I be talking with you about these things? And I think what we realized is that what I wanted to talk with you about, based on what you wrote, is not Indigenous people. It's about us and, and our role telling these stories that are complicated stories to tell and that we're not sure we're the right people to tell. And uh, what you wrote about so honestly and incisively uh, are the complexities of that. So uh, I think that that's, those are conversations that should happen. I'm really glad to have this conversation with you. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you. You know, I was, I, I am conscious of the privilege that I've had of the amount of airtime and space I've already taken up and I'm trying to be very deliberate about making space for others. And on the other hand, I do notice the exhaustion, especially this year, among Indigenous people who are called on again and again to explain Canadians to themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I agree that it is up to us, you and I, as 
to Canadians, as two Canadian journalists, to have some hard conversations about what we do and how we do it. And I also recognize, in a weird way, the privilege I had of being sick for several years where I could step back and really reflect on these things. And I, I know that people who are in the thick of it um, don't have that time. And it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that you facing your mortality and, and the way that you write about um, and how, how it changed your thinking about about what you do. That's something I want to get into with you. Before, though, I, I, I need to know something procedurally about what happened. I'm just curiosity, and I'm not a, a courtroom reporter. Why didn't Braden Bushby take the stand? You know, why, why, why wouldn't the Crown, who, are, who they're talking about um, how to feel the weight of the trailer hitch in his hand, he would have had to have known that that could have killed somebody. Why wasn't that put to him as a question? Um, do you know? I don't know, and the Crown is a reluctant talker. Um, I'm also curious about the fact that the people in the car with him weren't called to testify in open court. We know from two of the the people who were in the car, we know their testimony from a preliminary hearing. We got the transcript of that, but they didn't have to answer questions in court about their behavior or their potential culpability that night. I can't quite figure out whether I just see it more clearly now or that this case is just a really, really obvious example of how when a victim is an Indigenous person, they end up being the person on trial and their family. <laughs> Barbara Kentner's sister feels like, and it felt like being there, that she was on trial. She was. I mean, I, I, I know from your reporting, like, I mean, I don't know how to not be enraged. The uh, That Melissa Kentner would be accused, why didn't you take her right to the hospital? Is it because of your own troubles with uh, the authorities? And then it to be suggested to the judge that she actually is the one who is responsible for her sister's death. And the guys in the car laughing and the guy who threw the trailer hitch, they don't have to get up there and answer to themselves. I don't know how that isn't just, you know, appalling to anyone's sense of basic justice. It was hard to hear. This is what you've explored, and you reached a verdict in the piece that you wrote for Maisonov, reflecting on, on your career of writing about Indigenous people and the issues, the, the drinking water, uh, overcrowded houses, uh, mold, reserves, the residential schools. Your verdict was that you came to understand your work as pity porn for a hungry audience. That's a bit harsh, don't you think? You know, it's curious. And I may have to do some follow-up research on this. That seems to be almost universally the response I have had from white men was that I was too hard on myself. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I that I haven't had that response from anyone other than white men. Um, so yeah, perhaps that says that white men are more forgiving of their own mistakes. Maybe um, I I don't know that the piece 
is a, a an out and out condemnation of my work. I, you know, I came north to Sulukout to work for a First Nations communication society as a naive um, young woman. And I did the best that I could. I came with an open heart. Mm-hmm. And I had people tell me that that, you know, that, that that is medicine and that is protection when you're going into communities where there are difficult stories to be told. And, and I took that to heart. And I did the best I could with the limited resources that I had and the limited education I had. And I have learned much more and I have much more to learn. And so the piece I wrote is a, a reflection of that. Well, you're not shy from implicating yourself, so I don't think I should be shy from <laughs> being implicated no, here. Not as at well. all. No. What you wrote about that really gripped me was stories and theft. Who gets to tell whose stories and, and the chain of custody of a story. And when you're writing about your involvement in the Chani Wenjack story, like it was so interesting to take it through that chain of custody, that chronology, where of course, one would hope that that originally is Chenny Wenjack's story, but the dead tell no tales. It, like the, the story of his death is not his to tell. He's not here. And it's in McLean's that it first pops up and, and he's misnamed the lonely death of, of Charlie Wenjack. And then you trace it through uh, a indigenous folk singer, Willie Dunn, in the 70s and a, a Stola writer, uh, of course, Lee Maracle. But then Lee Maracle asks Willie Dunn for permission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to tell somebody else's story and then tracing it through to your radio documentary about Jenny Wenjack for the CBC, which is heard by Gord Downey's brother, brought to Gord Downey, and then in this sort of final ar- artistic work, his secret path. But then you, you bring it full circle to Jenny's sister Pearl on stage at, at a performance of, of Secret Path. I want. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that chain of custody and about what's right and what's wrong. Like, who gets to tell that story? Well, what I think of and what I was thinking about when I wrote this is that really the story of our people, people of settlers here, is that we came to a land where people already lived, and we, we claimed that we discovered it, and now we have this storytelling tradition of continually discovering the same stories and putting our flag on them, our byline on them, our stamp on them. So I did think very much about the story of Chani Wenjack and to whom it belongs. And also in parallel with that, there is this my own and I call it my own, but it is also my sister's story. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I ask her for her consent to publish this piece, to use her name and talk about her and this story. And yeah, I think the piece is very much a question about who has the right to tell whose story. And I think it also is important that we talk about the tools that we have to tell those stories. And 
one of the things I keep bumping up against as a journalist is the narrative device, the tool that we have is incredibly blunt. And it kind of goes like this. There's a victim. You should consider them, you know, as human as you can, but they're a victim. So they're kind of pitiful. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make you feel bad for them. And then I'm going to present with you someone who is to blame from that. And then I'm going to, to blame for that. And then I'm going to wrap it all up neatly and you can go on your way. And me, I don't and exist. Like I, I'm just this <laughs> right, floating yes. mist yeah. just telling you these yes. things. Yes. One of the problems with that is that it is very individualized as well. You know, the format for uh, a, a news story is someone doing something for a reason. So, you know, it can't be a group because that's not specific enough. You're really trying to get that one representative person. And the reality of our lives is that we are so interconnected that that's not necessarily true, that you can pin it on any one person doing one thing for a reason. And yet we struggle to have the tools to be reflective of that. And then the end result of this is you're left with this piece of information that, you know, at best raises awareness about something. And I feel like we have reached the limit of what raising awareness is worth. Like, I have been covering the lack of clean drinking water in Nishkandiga for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And the community has been without clean drinking water longer than that. That's just as long as I've been at CBC. Um, if you are unaware that there are places within Canada where a generation of children have not had water to drink, I'm not sure a news story is really, like, I, I just, I don't see that awareness can be, what we're after here. It, it, it isn't working. So much of this is like about us working out our own stuff and projecting that onto indigenous people. And you write about, mm -hmm. uh, okay. I, I'm, I'm not, go ahead. Can you, I, I, I'm not sure I want to agree with that before I, I explore that a little bit more with you. What do you mean? Well, you write about Gord Downey uh, being kind of hailed for, you know, uniting the country on his way out. And, and um, there was an aspect where he was using indigenous trauma, specifically the, this, this Chani Winchak's death, to deal with his own impending death. That there was something being worked out hmm. with his own trauma and the trauma that he was documenting. But you, 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 you don't leave yourself uh, out of that. You, you write about your journey from kind of conceiving yourself as sort of a nobody from nowhere, just a generic force telling truths and telling stories, to understanding that there was some connection between the traumas that you were reporting on and, and, and your own trauma. Yeah, and again, I don't think that it is a black and white thing. I mean, I think the fact that I grew up in a home where the truth that I 
lived, um, that my father sexually assaulted me was not the truth of my family, was not the truth of my small town where my family was an upstanding law-abiding family. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it is a traumatic thing <laughs> to, to be sexually assaulted as a child, to be the victim of incest. And that doesn't make me a victim for life. And I get this opportunity to write my own story in which, well, some may say I've been hard on myself. I got to tell it myself in my own way. And as you were talking to Emily uh, Nicola a few weeks ago, everyone wants to be the hero in their own story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we fall down as journalists is we forget that. And for our own devices, for our own news making, we choose who are the heroes and who are the victims. And we haven't evolved to a point where we have the tools to capture that nuance. And so... Like, I also think about this in terms of cancer and cancer survival. I mean, the the treacle that we pass off <laughs> as the, the people's story, like either you're like you lost your battle with cancer or you're a hero because you ran a cancer marathon. Like, it's just it's so immature mm-hmm. and like we've got to do this better on all fronts. Yeah. Like the world is a much more complicated place than we are making it out to be in our journalistic work. It was interesting to me that when you write about your cancer diagnosis, when, when you were facing your own mortality, your response was, here's what you wrote. I stopped working, removed myself from social media, practiced the invisibility that death would inevitably bring. I asked my boss to assure me there would be no mention of my illness, no on-air acknowledgement of my absence. Almost more than death, I feared becoming the object of pity. I desperately did not want anyone to do to me what I was just realizing I had done to so many others. I did not want to be cast as a victim. I did not want someone else to tell my story as though it was a tragedy. I did not want somebody else to tell my story so they could feel better. That almost sounds as, as, as impossible and, and problematic, I guess, uh, a desire as the need to insert yourself at the center of every story, which maybe I can identify more with. Hmm. But, but, you, but that's – and you write about that, the, the privilege of, of sort of disappearing. Why was that such a fearful idea for you to be in someone else's story? You know, one of the reasons I wrote this piece w- was because that – you know, I almost met Gord Downey once, anecdote that's in it, was a was a dinner party trick I would do. You know, I I almost met Gord Downey, but I didn't because I'm I'm on the outside of all this, you know, cozy flannel shirt wearing Canadiana. Um I, I'm an outsider to all of that, except that 
you know, I was, I work for the CBC. I'm pretty deep inside that. And I couldn't figure out, it was really troubling me as I was facing my own mortality. I couldn't figure out, was that, is the Shawnee Wenjack story the, the peak of my career or the fact that it became the secret path? Is that like the most shameful thing in my career? And so I had to write this to figure that out. And I, I feel like I, I did figure it out. And it, it's that it, it's neither. It's far more nuanced than that, as, you know, I, I probably could have concluded from the beginning. But that is to say that the act of telling stories and writing stories is a kind of magic. And I believe that because they are so powerful and they do have the potential for healing, that we need to get better at it. Mm -hmm. No matter whose story you're telling, you're always just telling your own. That's what... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I live in Thunder Bay, famous uh, writer from these parts, Jane Urquhart, her mm -hmm. famous novel, The Underpainter. And there's a, a part in it where the the main character, who's a painter all his life, realizes that he has actually painted the same picture every time he came to the canvas. And I I, I think that is true of my career as a journalist. And I think it's the true of many people involved in in creative work. You know, we it's always about us, and so you know we have to get better at at being in the in relationships like the ones we have with Indigenous people. We have to be the best us. This is this concept of reconciling with yourself before you can reconcile with others. You you have to work on yourself yeah. first. And and I think that too often we this is the projection I think you alluded to earlier that we if we haven't reconciled with ourselves we bring that to these stories and apply it to other people and I think that's what I was trying to avoid you know I, I just had this image of of my colleagues who were feeling bad that I was not among them anymore creating this version of myself of me that that isn't me and presenting it on air I like I really desperately did not want that to happen yeah you know it you put it better than I did. I mean, these are personal things, right? Uh, Gordowney knowing that he's going to die and and somehow dealing with that through a kid who died over 50 years ago and being kind of hailed and glorified and you facing mortality and looking at your own history of abuse. Those are personal stories, but I kept thinking, this is not just about you and Gordowney. Like, what is this country's trauma that we're trying to sort out and we can't face it? So we tell stories of terrible things happening to these poor people, but is that just how we're trying to somehow like find some way of actually dealing with what we did and what happened here and what this whole thing is built on? And is that fair to the people who supposedly these stories are about? Well, I mean, maybe. I, I think my bigger concern is that some of the journalism that that's done is a way of justifying what's happened. Mm -hmm. And even if that's not the intention, I think 
one of the problems I have with the secret path is that the story goes like this. I, I'm going to tell you about a little boy who died running away from residential school. And then it's all about his dying. And this is, you know, talk about rediscovering and reversioning the same old story. You know, this is the dying race trope. This is the thing that got trotted out in about Barbara Kentner and Braden Bushby's trial. This is this is what we keep going back to. If we keep landing on the victim story, then we justify our own actions. We we you know, we hurl the trailer hitch out the window and and we say, oh, but we didn't mean to. And, and you know, people were sick and dying anyway. Yeah. Uh, or it's too hard to get water to a place that's so far away. Why don't they move? Like, <laughs> when you make people victims, then you can justify their treatment. You, you make them unworthy. Yeah. And it's just totally conditional. It's it's the power of storytelling. You, it, it's the power of deciding. Actually, this is a triumphant story of of, of Chani's sister Pearl, fifty some odd years later, standing on a stage and telling the story that so many others have have taken and, and used for whatever purposes, and returning it to, to 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 her lips for what she needs it for. And and it's a story of survival. That's that's and a choice. You, you know. Yes. Yeah. And then that's why, you know, I wrote like, I wish if I could have that story back, I wish that the headline of that story is residential school survivor helps dying rock star confront death, because that actually is what happened. That is the truth of what happened. It's Pearl's, Chani's sister, Pearl. It's her strength and her love that not only you know, brought her brother back to life, but it also helped this random stranger who showed up on her doorstep as he was dying. And she was nursemaid to the worst time of his life. I don't have a lot of regrets as I face my mortality, but that is one of them that I, that I, I didn't know then what I know now and that I wasn't competent enough to tell that story in a way that would have been more meaningful and would have given us a, a, a place to go that's different than the place we've already been. And, and you're, you're, whatever those regrets are, you're doing this. You're, I don't think I've, I've ever been less articulate and less able to put into words what I'm trying to, to what, what I think and what I'm trying to say. And to do reconciliation right, it has to hurt. It has to be, it has to be uncomfortable. There, it's not a kumbaya. It's not a, it's not a hug. It's a, it's a struggle. And, and it's, I guess the decision is you could say, okay, this is pity porn. We're on the wrong side of this. Let's stop doing it. And I don't think that solves anything or progresses anything. I was very glad to learn that you, you're feeling better and and that you're back to work. It's so interesting to me that after talking about pity porn, you're in court today reporting for the CBC. You're telling stories again. But I guess you're working into the, your practice 
I don't know, opening up a dialogue and creating the opportunity for me to talk to, to somebody about this and, uh, and for many other people to think about what, what we're doing when we take on these stories. Yeah, and I, I don't think I could have gone back to work if I hadn't written this piece. Like, I really needed to work through that. And I, again, I am really grateful for the opportunity to talk about it with you and the opportunity I had to publish with Mason Oeuvre. They, they were great with me there. And also part of the reason I needed to write this was to hold myself to account. Like, that's the standard that I want to work to. And then um, the other thing, I might as well break the news with you today, Jesse, is I, I heard from my oncologist this morning and my cancer is back. Um, so I'm, I'm covering Barbara Kentner's, uh, um, the, the trial of Braden Bushby um, is possibly my last act of journalism. And so I, I'm grateful I had the opportunity to do that as well as I could. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, and it's, it's a strange um, coincidence. You know, uh, Barbara Kentner's funeral was one of the last things I covered um, before I first got sick. And, you know, there's no way it should have taken three years for that to get to trial. And somehow it did. And somehow that coincided with my being back. And so, you know, I think there's something that I was meant to learn from that. And I, I hope that maybe you and I have another conversation and we can, we can talk about that too. I, I hope so too. I, I'm really grateful that you talked to me today at all. Th thank you, Jody. No, it, it's kind of what got me through the day. So <laughs> was the chance to talk to you. That is your Canada Land podcast. This conversation with Jody Porter took place in November 2020. Jody died last month from ovarian cancer. I want to leave you with one last line from the essay that she wrote in Maison of Magazine. Every attempt at telling someone else's story adds another layer of grief when it fails. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you sent. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand, and our website is canadaland.com. This episode was originally produced by Rosalind Kafour and Gabe Knox. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca.
Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Karen Puglese, executive editor of Canada's National Observer, joining us from day six, is it, of COVID? It's closer to day eight, I think, or something. Glad to have you here regardless. Hope you get well soon. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Karen, where we talk about the news. Turning now to that historic apology issued by Pope Francis during his trip to Canada. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. Lives cut short, say survivors, by the residential school the Roman Catholic Church ran at this site. Even from afar, the Pope's words were enough to trigger haunting memories and the tears that follow. A feathered headdress was gifted to the Pope on the public stage. Karen, this was one of those news events that's like like a scheduled news event. Like you could look at the calendar and plan out your editorial coverage and say, okay, there's going to be a historical event on this date. And so the media, I think, had every opportunity to get this right. How do they do? You know, overall, I'm going to say pretty well. I think that this is a really complicated and nuanced story. People feel all sorts of ways about it. And I think they've really tried to balance those people who have waited for this, for whom this apology is very meaningful, how they feel about it, and with people who are not willing to accept it, who are experiencing anger and upset about it, upset about all the things that are not happening. And, you know, they've managed to get a little bit of everything in between. And I do think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's quite a few Indigenous journalists at the forefront of the editorial coverage. I felt the same way about it. There wasn't like any coverage that I heard that just blindly quelled over like, okay, this is great. This is done. There was always the... But there are questions or some people are unsettled about this or not everyone feels great about it. And it was respectful of the people for whom this was really meaningful and watching the actual just the apology itself. It wasn't anything that the Pope said. It was the faces of the survivors there where like I wouldn't want to be dismissive of something that like obviously had such 
deep, deep meaning and hopefully healing for people there. And it was so much was communicated just by their emotional responses. And it was one of those things where TV actually was the right medium just to see it. But in terms of the analysis, like, you know, hearing Thomas King with Galloway on CBC or reading Tanya Talaga in The Globe and then, you know, Pamela Palmater wrote in The Star and uh, Brandy Marin was, was there reporting, I believe, for Al Jazeera. But like, it felt like kind of a watershed moment, like, huh, maybe all of the work that's been done in recent years to make sure that there are indigenous journalists equipped in these newsrooms is like, we actually have like the bench strength to do this right and to cover the nuance. I kind of felt like the coverage was generally quite good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even at CNO, we've got uh, two Indigenous reporters and a host of Indigenous columnists. So in some ways, like per capita, we're pretty well, well benched for this ourselves. It made a difference. And I think Indigenous writers also know how to navigate this because in our culture, we often use an expression when we're going to have a, a, a difficult conversation. We'll say, I want to tell you something, but I want to say it in a good way. And that's meant to disarm you to say, we're going to say some things that might sound critical or whatever, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to have a more open conversation about things that we're going to disagree on and things that, if not said in a good way, might create animosity, but we're going to try to come together and, and have a good conversation about how we all feel, where we all feel heard, Right. So it's a very strong cultural approach. And I, I think that's sort of taken the lead. So if you look at some of those articles, Tanya Talega, Dan David, both respectfully talked about what this meant for the survivors who were celebrating the apology or receiving or accepting the apology. But they talked about the shortcomings, the doctrine of discovery, the controversy over Willie Littlechild, who is a former regional chief, former TRC commissioner, and uh, a very respected elder presenting a headdress to the Pope. That's really been controversial on social media, a lot of discussion about that. Cindy Blackstock did a piece where she looked at sexual assault victims and asking, what is the church, though, doing to address this? There were issues of all the papers that the church hasn't handed over in the schools. So those were all also things that people are feeling and also things that are left to be addressed and aren't addressed in this apology. Yeah, on a purely factual basis, I got those omissions. That was communicated to me by most of the coverage I saw, that he he didn't mention sexual assault, and he didn't promise to hand over the Vatican's residential school files, and he didn't talk about money, and, and he didn't renounce the doctrine of discovery. That was communicated, but it was Twitter where the more difficult things were wrestled with and sometimes quite bluntly. Like there was a little bit, like I heard Thomas King say about the headdress and all of this nuance and all of this like improved coverage. And yet the image, this is all about symbols because like very little in terms of practical or policy or anything being done came out of this. So this is a symbolic exercise. So the symbols matter and the images matter, the optics matter. And the optic, the chief image of this was the Pope in a headdress. And... This is a tricky one, as I understand it, for people to wrestle with. There's a lot of different nations in Canada. There's lots of different indigenous peoples. And nobody wants to say, that's bullshit, that that chief, they shouldn't have done that. Or maybe few people want to say that. No, I, and I mean, like in some, some nations, like I'm not aware of Algonquin nations, which is my nation. 
having a tradition of uh, providing people outside of our community with headdresses. But it has been done. Harper received a headdress. Justin Trudeau received a headdress. And my understanding of Plains cultures, which I think are the ones who mostly gift these, and anybody can write in and, you know, tweet at me and correct me if I've got this wrong. But what I've been told is that there's different reasons for giving these. But when you gift them, for whatever reason that you gift them, and I, Willie Littlechild didn't say why he was gifting it, but with that gift comes a responsibility. And so whether or not the Pope understands that, I don't know. Whether or not there was a conversation beforehand that this was going to happen. Like, these are kind of unanswered questions that I think are kind of sparking the debate because people don't really understand what the understanding of the Pope or Willie Littlechild was in that gifting. Having said that, there is something really remarkable to me about seeing this symbol that's been like oppression for our people and our culture for so long. Now having our culture imprinted on it in that way. So I felt like, because it's, it's not my culture, I'm kind of looking at it a bit as an outsider. And there was something about seeing that, I think maybe resonates in an important way. Like, I mean, there were times where we weren't allowed to bring our drums into church. We weren't allowed to speak our language in the residential schools. Early in churches, they did translate gospels and such into Cree and Algonquin languages, right? But now this this big symbol, you know, the big symbol of all of Catholicism is enwrapped in something that's culturally precious to us. There is something about that that's special, but what was the understanding between those two people? I don't know. Yeah, I guess you could read it a number of different ways. And some people read it negatively. Russ Diabo, outspoken on Twitter, Indigenous policy analyst, among other roles, said, In Alberta, it seems everybody gets headdresses, whether they deserve it or not, with pictures of Trudeau, Harper, Rachel Notley, and the Pope in headdresses. Dan David, veteran Indigenous journalist, tweeted in response to the headdress, This, after almost 20 years of about idiots wearing headdresses at rock concerts and Halloween parties, which is an interesting observation that after a high degree of sensitivity about cultural appropriation, when somebody stupidly appropriates Indigenous culture and wears a headdress for a Halloween party, to put that on the head of the Pope, who represents the Catholic Church, which is more guilty than just about any other institution for genocide and, and abuse, I could get why that would offend some Indigenous people. Absolutely. And I don't know, is this worth exploring? Like, there are a lot of different nations the Pope could have met with who would not have done that. But to meet with Chief Littlechild, who, and I learned this through Twitter, not through any of the coverage, is a former conservative member of parliament. You know, there had to be some intentionality in what is this going to look like? What are the pictures that are going to come out of this? How is this apology going to come across? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is something like in Dan's article that he wrote for us at The Observer, he talks about, you know, the church being this institution. And this is everything that hopped is more than a few bad apples. It is this powerful institution. It remains a powerful institution. It remains a moneyed institution. And he actually wrote, I'll read this pertinent sentence that he wrote. Like any global institution, the Vatican is very careful about the image and reputation of the Pope. The Roman Catholic Church, its various sects and the agencies, every bishop, priest, and nun, 
To borrow a term from modern advertising, the church jealously guards and protects its brand developed over the centuries. So a lot of this trip, this apology, where the Pope was choosing to go, who would be around him, who gets to go see him, who gets close to him, all of that would have been very carefully curated to put the best outcome on this, right? It's meant to be a public event. It's meant to be good for the Catholic brand. So that is all true. And I think what's happening in this kind of pushback against the headdress, particularly, is the question of sincerity around why that gesture was made and what was understood when it was accepted. We don't know. And so it's very easy for it to come off as just being like an empty gesture, uh, a photo op, right? What would really help at this point actually would be hearing from Willie Littlechild. I think he kind of owes a bit of, not an explanation, but insofar as he did something sacred and public. Yeah, and you bring up the biggest point, which I neglected to mention earlier, that was omitted, that was not said. The Pope apologized for the actions of specific Christians, sort of wayward, you know, sort of the bad apples apology, not for the institution. He did not apologize for the Catholic Church institutionally executing over the course of centuries a policy of genocide. So what does the headdress mean? Is it a gesture of like, we forgive you? Or is it like a gesture of we revere? Like, it's, is, is that the highest honor from, from a settler perspective, from a layperson's perspective? It could be interpreted as like, this is the highest honor you could give. So that's weird. I, I don't know. I guess an explanation would help. I don't know that one is owed to me, but it seems like there's confusion and conflict within the indigenous conversation about this. Yeah, I, I would say so. And I think it would be helpful because a lot of the anger surrounding this is not understanding the decision. Karen, let's do it. Duly note something for me, please. What do you got? Well, the first one, I was saying like it's a a shout out to APTN, but it's a little bit more than that. I mean, it starts as a shout out to APTN because I just want to note that still on the Pope's apology, they did the coverage in language, so you could listen in English, in Nuktitut Cree. ¿Qué estoy dando de mí? You're hearing Henry Pitawanaquat translate the Pope's words in Ojibwe. And I think that was probably really important to some people to hear the Pope's apology in language, which was fantastic. It's not easy to do. But then as I was thinking about it, you know, I started thinking of my former colleague, who's now the news director, Cheryl McKenzie. And, you know, both her parents are residential school survivors. Her dad has passed into the spirit world, but her mom is still here. And so I sent a little text to her just, you know, saying, thinking of you. And then I was thinking, you know, if you think from her mom's point of view, just how powerful that is from her time and her lifetime and how she was treated to the fact that her daughter is running this national indigenous news agency. Mm -hmm. Like, would she have ever thought as a little girl that something like that would be possible? She just must be so proud. And then in our own newsroom, we just hired a young Cree reporter. Well, I, he's not that young, but to me, everybody's young. Mateo Simulero, who's just started with us. His mom is also a survivor. So if I could just give him a shout out, because 
He's been taking care of family, doing self-care this week, and still getting stories that are important about this apology out. So, you know, to all the families that are experiencing this week, I think whether or not you feel like experiencing or celebrating the Pope's apology, it really is a time for us to think about the survivors and all the families who are sharing this kind of intergenerational story and celebrating the victories of our survivors. Because they really are, you know, like the child soldiers who fought cultural genocide and they had nothing, nothing but inner strength as a weapon. So that's my duly noted. It's a good one. I mean, in in addition to the earlier observation that this is kind of this moment where the investment and the awareness and the opportunities that have been given to Indigenous journalists, we're we're starting to see that strength and and that reflected in in the reporting. I think it's also absolutely worth talking about that, like, whenever you bring up residential schools, it's personal for people, whether directly or, or in their family. So to be doing such an excellent job while balancing that and negotiating that is uh, is worth noting. So, yeah, duly noted. That shortcuts. Karen, thank you. <laughs> thank you. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email me about what you heard today uh, or anything else at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. Karen Puglese, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Put in the show notes because we'll be on here another 20 minutes if I have to spell my name. <laughs> Check the show notes for Karen's Twitter handle. This episode's produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So-Called. Syndications by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Mm-hmm.